What happens when you take a hospice physician who's gained the wisdom of his patients' perspectives at the end of their lives, and you combine that with the financial expertise of one of the world's top financial independence gurus? Well, you have Dr. Jordan Grummet, who wrote the book Taking Stock, and so we have a lot to learn from him about how you determine what's important and therefore how to spend your money. Welcome to the Physician's Guide to Doctoring, a show by me, Dr. Bradley Block, and this is a practical guide for practicing physicians where we interview experts in and out of medicine to find out everything we should have been learning while we were memorizing Krebs cycle. Dr. Jordan Grummet, thanks so much for being on the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. It's an honor. So for those who don't know, he's he's known online as Doc G, and he's actually well-known in, in financial circles. He's, he's, a, he's an internal medicine physician who currently practices hospice consulting care. And I think we're going to get into that during the show, but he's best known for his, his financial independence, earn and invest podcasts, which is, is, is award-winning. And so uh, thanks for being on the show. Thank you so much. Yeah, I believe, believe it or not, I started in social media talking about medicine for years and eventually I stopped and went into finances and have been creating and doing things in the finance world. But I actually started medicine about 2004, 2005. I started blogging about medicine years ago. Wow. Back when uh, blogging was still in its infancy. Yeah, they called them weblogs back then, the days of the dinosaurs. And there was a few major players in the medical social media world. And it was kind of cool because it was really kind of fledgling back then. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So without plugging any other financial physician, social media podcaster out there, so I think everyone can kind of figure out <laughs> who that is, tell us your uh, financial independence origin story. I became a doctor basically in my mind at about the age of seven, and that was when my father died and he was a physician. I wanted to be just like him, and something clicked when he died, and I'm like, I'm going to walk in his footsteps I'm going to be just like him. And, you know, I spent the rest of my life identifying with this idea that that was my purpose in life, went to medical school, went to residency, found myself in practice. And after a bunch of years, I really started to burn out. Like I was at this point where I felt like I was spending all my time in front of a computer, working long hours and just feeling stressed and more importantly, not enjoying what I was doing. And at some point I got to this place where I was like, I need to find a way out of medicine. I'm sorry to interrupt so soon, but now you spend a lot of your time or you ended up spending a lot of your time blogging and podcasting also in front of a computer. <laughs> True. But at least then I have people in front of me. And got it. Got and it. I just use, not not mindless data entry. Yeah, exactly. I use the computer now as a way to connect with people and interact with people and create something beautiful. The problem with medicine is I felt like I was interacting, creating, being there for people when I was in front of their face. And I was doing that less and less time because I was in front of these computers fulfilling the digital necessities of whether that be the government or the healthcare system that wanted a bill for my visits or what have you, but not really adding to anything. And that's why it was kind of causing me major burnout. So when I was looking for a way out, I asked my accountant, how much money did I need? And she just threw out $10 million. I'm like, well, I don't have $10 million, so I can't, can't leave medicine. I had a financial advisor and he did a bunch of simulations and at some point, you know, the Monte Carlo simulations, at some point he said, you still have quite a ways to go. 
And then I fell into the financial independence retire early movement. I read a number of books and blogs, and it gave me the repertoire, the understanding, the vocabulary to actually look at my finances, make some calculations. And lo and behold, when I looked at what I had saved up and what I had invested in at that time, because I had parents who were very financially savvy, I had some real estate investments, I had a bunch of you know, money in the stock market, all things my parents had taught me. I realized I actually had enough money to leave medicine. And that was like the most exciting, amazing thing for a few minutes. And then I had a panic attack because I realized that now that it was a real possibility I could leave medicine, I had no idea who I was when I stepped out of that long white coat that I had been wearing so long in the office and in the hospital. I, I didn't know who I was going to be. And so so wait, before we get to your existential crisis, mm -hmm. hold on. What was different about the calculations made by the financial advisor, the accountant, and you, right? Because they said, not forever, and you said, now. So what was so different about the, the two ways of calculating that? So my accountant just pulled a number out of her sleeve and had no, no reason for it. It was like 10 million <laughs> yeah, yeah. sounds like a amount of money you want to have. An based unattainable on my goal. And so yeah. therefore I'm going to put it out there so we don't have to worry. Yeah. The financial advisor did a few things that totally threw off the numbers. One is my financial advisor said, well, how much do you want to spend a year? And so I had great spending habits and I was pretty frugal, but I'll tell you, I didn't really budget. I just put half of my money in the bank and put that investments, half the money we lived on. And I never thought about it. So when my financial advisor said, well, how much do you want to live on a year? I'm like 250, $300,000 a year. It sounds good to me. Right. And so we made all these calculations based on a number that was way more than we ever actually spent when I went down and budgeted, but he never told me, Hey, go look at your budget. See what you spend okay. on an average year. So the problem was that the accountant just made up a number. The mm -hmm. financial advisor, you made up the number. Yeah, yeah. And also okay. the other thing is the financial advisor, I had you know almost seven figures of real estate at that point and said, well, the real estate doesn't really create any money. So he didn't want to use that as like an income producing investment. And yet that was throwing off rental income. So there's, there was all sorts of things going on there that didn't quite make sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so that's, that's a big difference right there is like one, not knowing how much you actually spend and two, not including income as income. Yeah. And, and so again, okay. at first, at first blush, I just believed them. And I said, okay. Yeah. Okay. Now back to the existential crisis. <laughs> I feel like we need some music like dum, dum, dum back to the existential crisis. <laughs> Wait, I can, yeah, do, so I can do that. <laughs> back to you. So then the existential crisis, existential crisis is just, I, I realized I didn't know who I was. And so that didn't feel good anymore. It felt a relief that I had enough money, but then I had to go do the kind of hard work of figuring out who I want to be and what's purposeful and how do I create a new identity now that I'm stepping away from this physician identity. And where did that identity come from? How'd you arrive there? So there are a few things. When I first realized this, I couldn't just step away from medicine because I had no idea what to do with my life. So instead of stepping away from medicine, I took a very critical look at it. And I said, before I create this new identity, is there anything in this medical identity that fits me that still has value? And I started just subtracting out the things that weren't working. So at the time, I actually was a concierge physician seeing patients in their homes. 
And that was causing me a huge amount of stress because I was getting calls like 11 o'clock on a Friday night and I'd have to get up at four in the morning and go to their house because they were having an emergency. So the first thing I did is I got rid of my concierge practice because I had enough money. I didn't need the extra revenue and I did only nursing home work and then a few other things like hospice. I did that for about a year or two and I realized, you know what, this nursing home work is totally stressful, high risk patients, causing issues. So I got rid of that. So then I was doing hospice, but I was doing it a lot of hours. I was doing some nights, doing some weekends. And I'm like, you know what? I don't need to do nights and weekends anymore. So I got rid of the nights and weekends. Eventually what I settled on was being a consultant where I managed a team or two, which came out to about 15 hours a week of work. And that was all. And I would do that even if they weren't paying me for it. So I knew, okay, there's something I want to keep. So the other side of that is by dropping all these things, by subtracting out what wasn't working in my work life, I was creating a bunch of space and time. And during that space and time, I started exploring things that, I kind of knew I had interest in, but I had always blown them off because I thought, well, that's not work. Like I used to write. And when I wrote my blog post going back to 2004, 2005, I would like sneak time away at night while everyone else was sleeping or in 30 minutes during a lunch break just to pound out a blog post. But now I could actually explore writing. Eventually that turned into exploring podcasting. I could look into this personal finance stuff, which I found amazingly interesting and read and study it because I had all this extra time. So what I was doing is I was subtracting out the things that weren't working in my life, the friction from being a doctor, and I was adding in all these purposeful things that felt a lot more like me, like the writing, the podcasting. I did a bunch more public speaking. So I was adding in the good stuff, getting rid of the bad stuff, and it was a process that took years. It didn't happen immediately, but it created a life in which I have a lot more control of what I do. And those things that I do mostly feel strongly purposeful or have something to do with my identity. So I spend my time doing the things that feel good to me, the things that get me really excited. Doesn't mean I have a perfect life, right? Even when you're podcasting, the things you don't love doing, I mean, editing is not my favorite thing to do, but at least I chose that and I can get rid of it anytime. I can walk away tomorrow and say, you know what? I'm not going to do it. So for all those people listening out here, what would your life be like if you chose every activity you do the next day and anything you didn't want to do, you could probably walk away from and there'd be no major consequences. Can you imagine what that life would look like on a regular basis? This podcast is sponsored by Doc to Doc Lending, the personal lending platform for doctors by doctors. Traditional lenders overestimate the risk of lending to doctors because a lot of us carry significant debt. But at Doc to Doc, they know that as a profession, doctors almost never default on their loans, and they take that in consideration when they're setting our rates. I love what Doc to Doc is doing within our community, so please check them out at doctodoclending.com/pgtd. That's Doc to Doc Lending number two slash PGTD for Physician's Guide to Doctoring. One of the things that I really like about your journey is that it was like you were peeling things back slowly. Like it, the way you described it made it sound like all those things happened in rapid succession, but you said it happened over years. So you stopped, you stopped one responsible. You kind of took the things that you, in order of how much you, they didn't fulfill you. Let's describe it that way. That's how you kind of pulled away from them one at a time rather than all at once, and then you've got to create a completely new identity and what you're going to do all day from the ground up. Because one of the things that can be detrimental to your health is retirement, right? Like if you don't have a reason for getting up every morning, this is actually bad for you. You need, uh, pardon my French, uh, Dr. Grumet, uh, <laughs> uh, raison d'etre, right? A reason for being. And, and you know, there are studies out there that show that it's, it, it isn't good for your health. So, you know, what you did was 
you know, responsibility after responsibility, slowly, slowly saying no to, to thing after thing. And I really like that. I think for some of the doctors out there that might be a little ch- more challenging, like especially if you're an employed physician, like you just have to quit. Like there's not another option. So, you know, it might be challenging, though, in another circumstance. Yeah, I like to think in terms of friction and margin, right? So friction is what causes you not to enjoy life, and margin is what you build when you have power and freedom. So even if you are a younger physician in a job you like, or even take it out of medicine, if you're doing a job you don't like, the question is, what can you do to create some margin in your life so you can decrease the friction? So when you're a doctor, actually, you have a, a huge amount of power. One thing I realized is when I started looking out in the world as a doctor, I had a lot of skills that I could parlay into extra income. So one thing I started doing is I started working as a medical director at a bunch of nursing homes. Like in my area, they had these nursing homes. They wanted a good doctor who'd come in and see their patients, et cetera. So I could make a few thousand extra a month just being a nursing home doctor. Then I found I liked hospice and a lot of these hospices need a medical director. And so I could spend a little time each month being a medical director and make a few extra thousand dollars. So what that would allow me to do then is look at my job, the art of practicing medicine in the office, and I was saying, you know what, I don't want to see 20 patients a day in the office. Well, now I'm making this extra margin by doing some of these things I like a little more. I can pull back. Now, yes, it's true. If you work for a medical group and they have strict rules and they won't let you do some of these things, you may not be able to fashion the exact job you want. But if you keep working on margin, you may be able to leave that job and find a lower paying job. But because you have more margin, you don't mind as much. Or maybe you can keep that job but only do it 75% or half-time or part-time if they'll let you. Maybe you can let go of some nights or weekends. Maybe if you're taking call shifts to make extra money, you can back off some of those call shifts. So the question is how do you create margin in whatever situation you're in so that you can get rid of friction? And then to use your language, right, identify the friction. Like what are the things in your job that you really hate and and how do you – avoid them? How do you outsource them? For instance, how are you not outsourcing editing your podcast? I can't believe you've made this many episodes. You're still edit. You're financially independent and you still are editing your own podcast. Really? I don't do the first pass editing. So my son, I actually pay my son to do the first pass editing, but I think, I think most podcasters still do the final listen to make sure, make sure everything sounds the way it's supposed to. And because I'm picky and I like the sound of things, I often get in there and switch things up a little bit or clean it up a little bit. I guess that's how you end up with a Plutus Award. <laughs> I'm not sure how I ended up with the Plutus Award, but I'll take it. <laughs> so this juxtaposition of the knowledge of personal finance with your experience with hospice work ended up in a book, Taking Stock. So tell us about the book. So it was this funny thing. I I found myself feeling like an expert in two things, right? I was an expert in being a physician because it's something I had done for all of these years. And then I started learning and studying personal finance and I was becoming an expert in that. And I was doing this podcast and I like to do a podcast about personal finances, but not how you become financially independent because I felt like there's so many people who did such a great job of that. I wanted to have conversations about what happens next. Like if you're starting to build some of that wealth, the words I was using before is if you're building some of that margin in your life, well, what do you do with it? And I kept on coming back to the fact that the answers that people were searching for, my financial experts, the people I was talking to on my podcast, the answers they were looking for, I was starting to find them with my hospice patients. Because the hospice patients, given a diagnosis that meant they had a prognosis of six months or less, they really started looking at their life and asking themselves questions like, what's important? What do I regret? What could I have done differently? 
And almost none of them said, why didn't I make more money or why didn't I work more nights and weekends? So I started thinking about what my hospice patients were teaching me and applying it to the financial realm. And it started giving me these answers to questions that no one in personal finance seemed to really have the answer to. Like, what does this all mean? What is the role of money in our life? How do we use money to parlay that into a good life? Um, the dying actually had a lot of interesting things to say about that. All right. So what are, what are some of those big lessons? Stop holding back on us. <laughs> so I think one of the biggest lessons is people who are dying don't regret things like whether they made a lot of money. They don't regret actually how far they got in their job or what their job title was. What they do regret is failing to have the courage to do those things that were important to them or not even bothering to think about what was important to them. Interestingly enough, the dying don't care per se if they failed at something. It was if they didn't have the courage to try it, right? So when it comes to whether it was living a more authentic life, whether it was pursuing something that you always wanted to do that you were too scared to do, whether it were the relationships you let go of that you thought that were important and you kept on thinking you were going to mend those relationships and you never did, it was all those kind of issues. It wasn't kind of the typical societal make lots of money become an important person thing. It was much more, what are those kind of deeper things that I kind of ignored because it was scary or I was too busy or people told me I couldn't do it? Okay. So, so what I'm hearing is experiences and relationships and purpose, right? Is that a, is that a fair summary? I think experiences, relationships, um, and doing things that were deeply important to you, even if they didn't have meaning, but they were important to you, right? So, okay. you know, I values, values. So identifying values. your yeah. values. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. That's interesting because I just did uh, a podcast and it'll be, you know, last week's episode um, with Phil Parazio, who's a urologic oncologist. He, his, his show is called Operate with Zen. And he's that, that was one of the big themes was like, like, what should we all do tomorrow? Sit down and figure out what your values are. Figure out what's important to you. Like, that is such a huge priority. And we seem to just, you know, especially in medicine, we have these jobs that society deems important. And we just, we get on this train. And as you experienced, this is a hard train to get off of with no, with no stops, with no stations, right? You get on the train in, in high school, or as you did at seven years old, you get on this train to become a doctor. And... And it seems like we have a path and we have jobs that are important. So how many of us are really not sitting down and saying, you know, what are my values and what is important to me and how and and how do I spend my time consistent with my values? I think that's what it, it comes down to. Right. Yeah. And I mean, I think I'm trying to get the wording on this right. If you don't know your values, you don't know how to set your intentions, right? Because often we can't actually control outcomes, but we can control intentions. So you have to understand your values to set your intentions appropriately to then fulfill your purpose. And I think if you don't start with something like the values, you don't, you're kind of going in a bunch of directions, but you don't really know where you're going. Got it. So identify your values, minimize your friction, right? Seems like some good themes to living a better life. And something else that, you know, you talk about it in the book is this, the fire movement versus, versus FOMO, right? So in the fire movement, there's, 
You've got to work really hard. And this is what we do in medicine, right? You like front load your life with work, mm -hmm. this investment in our income, in our education that then pays off in terms of us being high earners, right? So so we just get so conditioned to do that that the FIRE movement really seems consistent with that too. Great. Now I'm going to keep chugging along for the first 10 years as an attending, 15 years, whatever it takes to get. And I'm going to live frugally. So I'm not going to spend a lot of money. So I'm going to live frugally. I'm going to work hard juxtaposed against not living frugally, <laughs> taking lots of time off, taking lots of vacation and not actually saving. So, you know, there's this scale, right? Where you're just, you know, spending all your money, carefree living versus the, the intensity and the frugality of the fire movement. So where do you, how do we figure out where we fall on that scale? So I think we have to be really intentional about how we live our lives so we can figure out where to fall on that scale. Because unfortunately, if you do it incorrectly, there's some real consequences. My father died at the age of 40, right? So if my father had been a big fire adherent and had been frugal and had passed on a lot of things he wanted to do because he was waiting till one day he'd retire and be happy and have enough money to do things, he would have completely missed out in life. The problem is, and I think it'd be a really easy question if you knew exactly when you were going to die. Like if I knew that I was going to live to the age of 80, then I might be a little bit more frugal now, save up a lot of money. And then as I got further along, I'd spend and spend and spend until hopefully I had about zero at the age of 80. On the other hand, if I knew that like my father, I was going to die young at 40 or 45, heck, I wouldn't save anything. I would go and I'd spend a lot of money and really enjoy today, here, and now. So since we don't know when we're going to die, I think the way to think about it is to ask yourself a question. What scares you more? Are you more scared that you're going to die young and wealthy and never enjoy that money? Or are you more scared that you're going to live to an old age, run out of money, and die broke? And I think if you can ask yourself that question, it's going to help you actually decide how to spend today. So let me explain that. Like my father actually felt like he was going to die young. He told my mom when he married her, he said, I don't think I'm going to live to an old age. So interestingly enough, he lived exactly like that. He had tons of hobbies. He traveled a lot. When he got done with his fellowship, he was offered this really lucrative job with an oncology group, and he passed it up to work at the VA and work about half the hours and make about half the money. You see, he didn't think he was going to live long, so he wasn't as worried about accumulating a huge amount of money. I mean, like he got life insurance, so his wife and kids would be okay. And he saved some, but he also wanted to spend for today because he didn't know how many tomorrows he would have. If you were like that and you're afraid that you're going to die young, let's say you make $100,000 and you live off of $50,000 for the essentials, which means you have $50,000 left over. You might want to use 40000 of that for YOLO and FOMO and let's spend it and we're going to take long vacations and we're going to work less hours and let's have a blast. And then let's take 10000 of that and save it and put it towards retirement. So if you are right and you die young, then hell, you used your money pretty well. You spent most of it. You really enjoyed those YOLO moments. You're doing pretty good. Let's say you're wrong and live to a right- Hold on. Wait, wait, wait. Hold on. Hmm. I want to explore that for a second because- it sounds like that life that you've just described is a very sustainable one. That's the point. Right? And so this person is going to be able to, able to save, but they're also going to be able to work for a long time without 
you know, right. decreased so, likelihood of burning out, right? And so they'll be able to work until yeah. they're 70, 75, because they're enjoying so much of their life. And so as opposed to someone who works their butt off early, but right. it's miserable, that's a risk, right? Well, so the first scenario is they were right and they died. The second scenario is they're wrong and live to an old age. But like you said, it's a pretty good life because they're taking the vacations. They're spending the money. It ain't a bad way to live. And then when they make it 70 or 80, since they have been saving some, they're going to have some retirement and be okay. Let's look at the other side of it. Let's say you're, you are afraid you're going to live to an old age and be broke. Well, then you may decide to say, okay, I make $100,000, $50,000 goes to my essentials. I have $50,000 left over. If you think you're going to live to an old age, maybe you save $40,000, put it towards retirement, and then $10,000 you use right now for YOLO. Like, have a good time with that $10,000, but let's put money away. You're going to have plenty of time to enjoy yourself when you're retired at the age of 50, and you're going to live to 80. You're going to be great. If you're right then you're going to hit financial independence pretty quickly by saving that 40000 every every year, and you're going to be you know well off. If you're wrong, and I guess this is the worst of the four scenarios, if you're wrong and you die early, you die early and you never really get to use your money. You get to use 10000 while you're saving the 40000 but I'll tell you, you didn't know you were going to die early, so you were really excited about how great your retirement was going to be, and you also leave money for your family and your friends and everyone else. So it's not perfect, that last of the four scenarios, but three out of four scenarios are pretty good. For someone who you know, blogs and podcasts about the FIRE movement, you're making an excellent argument against it. Maybe it's just my own values coming through, but it sounds like that first life that you describe, either way, there's a, you know, it's a, it, there's, I don't want to say a happy ending, but you know what I mean. There's like this person had an opportunity to live and enjoy their life. In the second one, there's – so then why would someone work their butt off and live live frugally? You know, it convinced me to, to join the fire movement. I'm not there. So if you are of that second group where you think you're going to live to an old age, I have to tell you, life is pretty fantastic being financially independent. Like – Okay. I All have right. enough money that no one can tell me what to do. And starting pretty much in my mid-40s, I can do whatever I want. I can do whatever kind of work I want. I don't have to bend to anyone else's wishes. I now have, fingers crossed, if I live to a reasonable age, I may have 30 or 40 years of really doing whatever I want, how I want, when I want. But I will tell you. If I had been smart enough to start thinking about things like purpose and identity at the beginning of my career, it's possible I would have done hospice from day one. I would have made a lot of less money, but I would have been doing something that I probably enjoyed more and it would have sustained a much longer career. And I probably would have also been happy doing things that way. So I think the point is to be intentional. I think you can go in either direction and it just depends on your personality and what suits you and what kind of control you want over your life. But in a sense, I also define financial independence as finding a job you love that pays the bills. So if I find a job that I absolutely love, a job I would do even if no one was paying me for it, and I find that job when I'm 25 and that job pays the bills, I'm kind of financially independent. I might have to work till I'm 70. But what are, what are you going to do when you quit your job? You're going to do what you love. Well, what if you're already doing what you love and it pays you? I think we have to broaden this idea of what financial independence is. I think there are three or four different paths there. And one of those paths 
is, you know, what I like to call the passion play. It's finding something you love to do and making money at it. And it's, it's a, I guess it's a dynamic thing as well. Like you've now saved enough that you don't need to work 55 hours a week. You've saved enough that you can, you, you're on a good trajectory working 20 hours a week. And now you can do this until you're 75 and really, really love it. You know, I, I feel like with a lot of our jobs out there, it would be a lot more enjoyable if we just did it less. You know what right? I love? Like you work part time. You're going to, you know, we're what we do. It's a privilege. It is a privilege, but it can also be a grind. You take the grind aspect out of it. You're going to make some money and you're, you're going to enjoy it a lot more. Yeah. You know what I love is you pair financial independence with like being an ER physician, let's say. And people who do this, who are emergency room physicians, you know, they just start cutting back on shifts. It's it's cake, right? So what happens is you gain enough money, you put it away, you invest, and you still like your job. So you're doing your job. But again, you say, you know what? I'm not doing any more overnight shifts <laughs> or I'm not doing any weekends or I'm only doing 10 shifts this month. Um, and it's a fantastic way to both keep what you love about your job, but then also have the freedom to go pursue whatever you want. And here's the other kicker is if you still work those five or 10 shifts a month, you don't even need nearly as much money because you're going to still have active income coming in. Um, so and health you insurance even, and all that comes with it. Yeah. Yeah. So you could even duck out way before you're technically at the financial independence number. However, we want to define that. There are plenty of ways to define that. But, you know, people say 25 times your yearly spending or what have you. But the point is you can find that maybe in your mid thirties, you can really start designing that life you want and actually have the financial backing to do it. Be making smart financial moves, even though you're not maximizing your income. Before we close here, can you tell us a, a story or two from your book about your you know, lessons, financial lessons, life lessons that you've learned from one or two of your hospice patients? Yeah, let me tell you one of my favorite stories. And because I think it shows the nuances of some of this decision making. I had a patient named Ernesto, and Ernesto was in his 20s. He was moving up the corporate ladder. He was really in the prime of his work, and he did something that no one understood. He decided to take a year off of work just when he was getting where he wanted to be in his career. He took a year off of work. He trained, and he went to go climb Mount Everest. So that was in his you know, mid to late 20s. I met Ernesto at 40, and Ernesto was dying of leukemia. And when we would come to see him in the hospice team, he would regale us with these stories about what it felt like to be on the mountain. So let's think about this. What if Ernesto had been a fire practitioner, right? What if he had been someone who's really only interested in money and financial independence? He probably would have said, you know what? I'll have plenty of time to climb Mount Everest. I need to build my career now, right? And he'd be sitting on his deathbed in his 40s, regretting that he never did it. But in his case, he found something that had enough purpose and enough value for him that he didn't want to put it off. Here's something also interesting about Ernesto. He didn't succeed. When they went to climb Mount Everest, they ended up hitting some bad weather. He made it about halfway up, and then his time was over and he came back. But when he was on his deathbed, he didn't regret that he didn't succeed. He would have regretted if he had never tried. So he still had all these wonderful stories of, of being up on the mountain and the cold and the climbing and the shortness of breath. He had all the experience. And I think it shows us this important thing that we talk about money and we want to put it in the bank and we want to invest it so it can compound, right? But experiences and joy also compound. So Ernesto's experiences compounded and they paid dividends for the rest of his life. 
And so we have to start thinking about our investments, but look way past just our monetary investments. And we have to start looking at some of these life investments. And Ernesto did a really good job of that. And I feel like he felt some real sense of peace when he died because he did this thing that was just so important for him. I've heard, I've heard this. I've never seen a source, but you know, economists say that you don't get joy from stuff. You get joy from experiences, you know, so spending being frugal with stuff. Fine. Don't get a fancy car. Don't get the fancy silverware. But when it comes to experiences, I mean, do you need a five-star hotel? Maybe, but like take the time, have the experiences that should be the focus of your, because there's joy in planning. There's joy in doing there's joy in remembering there's joy in the people that you are doing it with it strengthens your bonds. We, I went to Disney with my, with my parents and my, my wife and kids. And it wasn't, it's not really our style of a vacation, but one thing that happened, my kids, they see my parents like one hour, once a week, they come over, hang out for an hour. This Now they were in an adjoining room. They were running in and out. They were having this experience. And my parents, you know, it's like months and months later, they still talk about it. They still think about it. My, my three, my three little boys, three, five, and six running in and out of the room, sometimes with clothes on, usually not. <laughs> so as much as it was a schlep and expensive and everything, like it's just, yeah, it's, it's the experiences. I think that's another big takeaway here. Our experiences are so hugely important. And so take the time off, spend the money on, on doing those things that, that you're going to enjoy. And I'll, you know, I'll tell you after the show, some things that since you've reached out to me, it's made me think about these things and, you know, we're going to be planning some more vacations where otherwise I was like, no, I have to work. I have to like, yeah, we go on a vacation, but like, no, it's uh, got to take that time. Yeah. I mean, I, I definitely like, so experiences and people end up being incredibly meaningful. When I do see people at the end of the life where things are important, it's usually because the thing is a symbol of something else that was an important, either an experience or a relationship or a passion, right? So people sometimes surround themselves with their things when they die, but it's usually something that meant something. Like if someone had a hobby where they collected something and that had deep meaning for them, uh, sometimes things do matter, but usually more as symbols than the thing itself. So where can people find your podcast and where can people find your book and you online? So the easiest way to find everything I create is to go to jordangrummet.com. That's J-O-R-D-A-N-G-R-U-M-E-T. When you're there, you can, of course, find links to buy the book that's called Taking Stock. But you can also find links to the three different ways that I've created content either currently or in the past. The first is my podcast, Earn and Invest. That's earnandinvest.com, but you can also find it at jordangrummet.com. There's also links to my medical blog, In My Humble Opinion, which I wrote on from about 2005 to 2018, as well as my financial financial blog, diversify.com. You can find that all if you just go to jordangrummet.com. Dr. Jordan Grummet, thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a blast. Thanks for listening to the Physician's Guide to Doctoring. Be sure to subscribe and leave us a positive review on your favorite podcast player. I'm also available for medical legal consulting and keynote speaking if you're interested, or to just give us some feedback on the show, email me at brad at physiciansguidetodoctoring.com. I'll see you next week. The ideas expressed in this podcast are those of the interviewer and interviewee and do not represent those of their respective employers.